Part Two, Chapter Twelve of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. At the levee, Prince Andrei, who stood in the place appointed among the Austrian officers, merely received a long, fixed stare from the Emperor Franz, and a slight inclination of his long head. But after the levee, the flugel adjutant of the evening before politely communicated to Bolkonsky the emperor's desire to give him an audience. The emperor Franz received him standing in the middle of his room. Before beginning the conversation, Prince Andrei was stuck by the evident confusion of the emperor, who reddened and did not know what to say. "'Tell me when the action began,' he asked hurriedly. Prince Andrei told him. This question was followed by others, no less simple. Is Kutuzov well? How long ago did he leave Krems? And so on. The emperor spoke as though his whole aim were to ask a certain number of questions. The answers to these questions, as he made only too evident, did not interest him. At what hour did the engagement begin? asked the emperor. I cannot tell, your majesty, at what hour the fighting began on the front, but at Durenstein, where I happened to be, the army made the first attack at six o'clock in the evening, said Belkonsky eagerly, for he supposed that he now had a chance to enter into the carefully prepared and accurate description of all that he had seen and knew. But the emperor smiled and interrupted him. How many miles is it? From where and to where, your majesty? From Durnstein to Krems. Three miles and a half, your majesty. Have the French abandoned the left bank? According to the reports of our scouts, the last of them crossed that same night on rafts. Plenty of provender at Krems. Provender was not furnished in that abundance which... But the emperor interrupted him. At what hour was General Schmidt killed? At seven o'clock, I should think. At seven o'clock. Very sad. Very sad. Then the emperor thanked him and made him a bow. Prince Andrei left the audience chamber and was immediately surrounded by courtiers coming from all sides. From all sides flattering glances rested on him, and flattering words were heard around him. The flugel adjutant reproached him for not having put up at the palace and offered him the use of his rooms. The minister of war came and congratulated him on having received the order of Maria Theresa of the third degree, which the emperor had conferred upon him. The Empress's Chamberlain invited him to wait upon Her Majesty. The Grand Duchess also desired to see him. He did not know who to answer first, and it took him several seconds to collect his wits. The Russian ambassador put his hand on his shoulder, drew him into a window, and began to talk with him. In spite of Bilibin's prognostications, the news brought by Bolkonsky was joyfully hailed. A thanksgiving to Deum was ordained. Kutuzov was decorated with the Grand Cross of Maria Theresa, and all the army was rewarded. Bolkonsky was overwhelmed with invitations and was obliged to spend the whole morning in making up calls upon the principal dignitaries of Austria. Having finished his calls, about five o'clock in the afternoon, Prince Andrei, mentally composing a letter to his father about the engagement and his visit to Brunn, returned to Bilibin's lodgings. At the door of the house occupied by Bilibin stood a britzka, half full of luggage, and Franz, Bilibin's valet, was just coming out, laboriously dragging another trunk. 
On his way back to Bilibin's, Prince Andrei had stepped into a bookstall to lay in a store of books for his campaign, and had spent some time there. "'What does this mean?' asked Balkonsky. "'Alas, your excellency,' said Franz, with difficulty tumbling the trunk into the brutska. "'We're going farther off. The rascal is after us again.' "'But what is it? What does it mean?' demanded Prince Andrei. Bilibin came out to meet Balkonsky. His usually tranquil face showed traces of excitement. "'Well, well, confess that it's delightful,' said he. "'This story of the Thaber Bridge, the bridge at Vienna. "'They crossed it without striking a blow.' "'Prince Andrei still failed to understand. "'Where have you been that you don't know "'what every coachman in the city has heard long since?' "'I have just come from the Grand Duchesses. "'I heard nothing of it there. "'And haven't you noticed that everywhere they're packing up?' "'No, I haven't. "'But what is the trouble?' asked Prince Andrei, impatiently. "'What is the trouble? "'The trouble is that the French have crossed the bridge "'which Auersberg was defending, "'and the bridge was not blown up, "'so that Marat is now hastening down the road to Brune, "'and they will be here to-day or to-morrow.' "'Be here? "'But why was the bridge not blown up when it was mined? "'Well, that's what I ask you. "'No one, not even Bonaparte, knows that.' Bolkonsky shrugged his shoulders. "'But if the bridge is crossed, the army is destroyed, of course it will be cut off,' said he. "'That's the joke of the thing,' rejoined Bilibin. "'Listen. The French enter Vienna, just as I told you. All very good. On the next day, that is yesterday, Messrs. Marshals Marat, Lannes, and Billiard mount their horses and ride down to the bridge. Notice, all three of them are Gascons.' Gentlemen, says one of them, you know that the Thaber Bridge is mined and countermined, and that in front of it is a terrible tete de pont, and fifteen thousand men who are commanded to blow up the bridge and not allow us to pass. But our master, the Emperor Napoleon, would be pleased if we took that bridge. Let us three go, therefore, and take that bridge. Yes, let us go, said the other, and they go to it and take it and cross it and now they are on this side of the Danube with their whole army, and are in full march against us and against your communications. A truce is jesting, said Prince Andrei, becoming melancholy and serious. This news was sad, and at the same time pleasant to him. As soon as he knew that the Russian army was in such a hopeless situation, it occurred to him that he himself was the one called upon to rescue it from this situation, that this was his Toulon, destined to lift him up from the throng of insignificant officers and open to him the straight path of glory. Even while he was listening to Bilibin, he was picturing himself going back to the army, and there, in a council of war, proposing a plan which alone might save them, and that to him alone it was granted to accomplish this plan. "'A truce is jesting,' said he. "'I am not jesting,' insisted Bilibin. Nothing is more voracious or more melancholy. These gentlemen ride upon the bridge without escort, displaying their white handkerchiefs. They assert that there is an armistice, and that they, the marshals, have come over to talk with Prince Auersberg. The officer on guard lets them into the tete de pont. They give him a thousand choice specimens of Gasconade, and they say that the war is ended, that the Emperor Franz has decided upon a conference with Bonaparte, 
and that they wanted to see Prince Auersberg, and a thousand other trumpery lies. The officer sends for Auersberg. These gentlemen embrace the officers, jest, sit astride the cannon, and meantime a French battalion quietly crosses the bridge and flings the bags with the combustibles into the water and enters the Tetapont. At last the lieutenant-general, our dear Prince Auersberg von Mauthorn himself, appears on the scene. Our dear enemy, flower of the Austrian army, hero of the Turkish wars, our enmity is at an end, we can shake hands. The Emperor Napoleon is dying with anxiety to make the acquaintance of Prince Auersberg. In one word, these gentlemen, who are not Gascons for nothing, so but juggle Auersberg with fine words, he is so ravished by this rapidly instituted intimacy with the French marshals, so dazzled by the sight of Marat's mantle and ostrich feathers, that he does not see the point, and quite forgets that he himself ought to be pointing at the enemy. Notwithstanding the vehemence of his remarks, Bilibin did not fail to pause after this mou, so as to allow Belkonsky time to appreciate it. The French battalions run on the bridge, spike the cannon, and capture the bridge. The bridge is theirs. But this is best of all, he went on to say, allowing the fascination of his narrative to keep his excitement within bounds. This, that the sergeant who had charge of the cannon, the discharge of which was to explode the mines and blow up the bridge, this sergeant, I say, seeing the French soldiers running over the bridge, was just going to fire his gun, but Lanz pulled away his hand. The sergeant, who was evidently more intelligent than his generals, hastens to Auersburg and says, Prince, you are imposed upon. The French are here. Marat sees that their game is played if the sergeant is allowed to speak further. With pretended surprise, a true Gascon, that he is, he turns to Auersburg. I don't see in this anything of your world-renowned Austrian discipline, says he. Do you allow a man of inferior rank to speak to you so? It was a stroke of genius. Prince Auersberg prides himself on punctilio, and has the sergeant put under arrest. But you must confess that all this story of the Thaber Bridge is perfectly delightful. It was neither stupidity nor cowardice. C'est très huson peut-être. Perhaps it is treason, though, said Prince André, his imagination vividly bringing up before him the grey capotes, their wounds, the gunpowder smoke, the sounds of battle, and the glory which was awaiting him. Not at all. This puts the court in the most stupid position, continued Bilibin. It is neither treason nor cowardice, nor stupidity. It's just the same as at Ulm. He paused as though trying to find a suitable expression. Say, c'est du mac. Nous sommes maquis. We are macked, he said, at last satisfied that he had coined un mot, and a brilliant mot, such a one as would be repeated. The wrinkles that had been deeply gathering on his forehead quickly smoothed themselves out in token of his contentment, and with a slight smile on his lips he began to contemplate his fingernails. "'Where are you going?' he asked, suddenly turning to Prince Andrei, who had got up and was starting for his chamber. "'I'm off.' "'Where?' "'To the army.' "'But you intended to stop two days longer, didn't you?' "'Yes, but now I'm going immediately.' And Prince Andrei, having given his orders for the carriage, went to his room. "'Do you know, my dear fellow,' said Bilibin, coming into his room, "'do you know, I have been thinking about you.' 
why are you going and in testimony of the irrefragability of his argument against it all the wrinkles vanished from his face prince andrei looked inquiringly at his friend and made no reply why are you going i know you think that it is your duty to hurry back to the army now when it is in danger i understand it mon cher c'est de la voisima not at all said prince andrei but you are une philosophie be one absolutely look at things from the other side and you will see that your duty on the contrary is to preserve yourself leave this to others who are not fit for anything else you have no orders to return and you won't be allowed to go from here so of course you can stay and go with us wherever our unhappy lot carries us they say we are going to olmutz and olmutz is a very nice little city and you and i can make the journey very comfortably in my calash cease your jesting bilibin said bolkonsky i am speaking to you sincerely as your friend judge for yourself where and for what purpose are you going now when you can remain here one of two things will happen to you here he managed to gather a fold of wrinkles under his left temple either peace will be concluded before you reach the army or else defeat and disgrace will await you with the rest of kutuzov's army and bilibin smoothed the skin again feeling that the dilemma was unavoidable of that i am not in a position to judge said prince andrei coldly but he thought in his own mind i am going to save the army mon cher vous êtes un héros said bilibin end of chapter 12